0: also me. (laughs) This Sunday are passages from Matthew 24. And the passage that um, Mike will be preaching on is 15 through 51, but we're going to start reading and preparing from verse 36. On the red Bibles underneath your chair, it is page 830. Sorry, 829. No, 830 starting in verse 36. Matthew twenty-four, thirty-six to 51. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. Is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes? Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Morning, my name's Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Happy to be worshiping with you this morning, and excited to share it in the scriptures with you today. So, as I begin, there there's sort of kind of two kinds of difficult passages in the Christian Hebrew scriptures. There's some that are difficult to understand, and then there's some that are difficult to swallow. And as a preacher, you always kind of hope that you're just going to get one of those things on a given Sunday, right? That, like, if it's a hard-to-understand passage, then you can, you can take the time to sort of explain. If it's a, a hard-to-swallow passage, then you can sort of take the time to apply it and to sort of feel different objections and to, to maybe interact with philosophy or culture a little bit more. But what you always dread is sort of a perfect storm situation where you get both a difficult to understand and a difficult to swallow passage at once. Uh, That's kind of what we have on the table this morning. We have a passage that um, is is both full of references to the Old Testament, full of different allusions that that Jesus is deploying at different places, it's uh, making references left and right, so it's difficult to understand passage, but at the very same time, it's also communicating something that's very difficult for us to swallow, especially in our cultural moment, in the way that we've, many of us have been enculturated. This is sort of a, a really difficult thing for us to um, to see as being relevant to us. So I say this just to, to say that there's going to be so much more that I could communicate on both the meaning of the passage as well as just on the idea of God's judgment. I sort of wish that I could devote one sermon to each, but instead I'm going to try to tackle both at the same time, and I'll be looking for your guys' patience and grace as, as I walk through it. So today's passage is going to eventually get around to talking about what Christians call the second coming, or the return of Christ. So we believe that human history is going to culminate with Jesus returning to restore all things, to make all things new. And, and part of what we, we believe is, you know, what we believe is part of that is, is that Jesus is also going to return to judge. Each individual life will be sort of evaluated on its relationship to the Creator and to the grace that he extended in Christ. And so depending on where we stand before him, we're either going to receive God's presence as never before or lose it entirely. And so there's there's lots of different reasons why we, in, in our current American culture, tend to struggle with God's judgment, and I wish that I could go through through each of them. I'll just mention two, and hopefully they'll be be helpful. At the end of the day, the, the sermon shouldn't be the end of a conversation. It should be the beginning of, of a conversation. And so I just hope that if, if I don't... You know, right here, I'm going to sort of anticipate a couple objections to the idea of God's judgment, talk through that a little bit. But if I don't touch where you're at this morning, I hope that you'll just... Start a conversation. You know, approach me and, and ask questions, or approach one, you know anyone around you. And you know, I think the sermon is best when it's not the end of a conversation, but the beginning of one. And so I'll throw out a couple things that hopefully will be helpful. But at the end of the day, real understanding I think happens in community. So on the one hand, I think in our culture we we feel that God's judgment must be arbitrary. We ha- we have trouble you know, coming up with any sort of category for judgment that isn't arbitrary. So we have this kind of idea in our head that that we we imagine good people being condemned, and most of us are are pretty sick of religious folk, and so it's hard for us to imagine that it's actually them that get in. But I've come to think that this is really just a caricature of what the Bible is actually describing when it talks about God's judgment. Throughout the scriptures, God's judgment is more seen as, as this sort of, like, big reveal, right? So there are many people who are, just rejected by society, fatigued, sick of life, sick of themselves, desperate to change, and, and, and really their whole relationship to, to God has just been one of clinging on desperately to his grace to be sufficient where they are not. And, and Jesus again and again describes those people as the ones who will find themselves enjoying the presence of God in the earth. Whereas on the other hand, throughout the book of Matthew, we've seen that there will be many who are sort of church folk, very religious, very pious, very disciplined. These are kind of spiritual athletes, but in their hearts they have no sense of need for God. They have no desire to to live for a different outcome than just the realization of their own desires. But they're padding their life with religiosity so they can feel better about themselves, and they are never able to receive God's grace because they're never able to admit that they have need of it. But they look really good. And again, and again, in the book of Matthew, we've seen Jesus say that it will be those folk who will lose the presence of God in the judgment. And so I don't think that the judgment of God is arbitrary. I think from our perspective and our limited sort of time space coordinate or whatever, it's mysterious. But the results of God's judgment, it's important for us to realize that it's not going to come down to whether or not someone was churchy enough, right? It's going to come down to whether or not a person recognized their need for grace and went to Jesus to find it. It comes down to whether they trusted in Jesus and turned away from the kind of life that shoves God out. I'm not just saying that that answers all the questions. There's still mysteries here, but I think it's an important thing for us to recognize. The other reason why, why I see Many of us just sort of rejecting the idea that a good God would judge has to do with we don't tend to like how God responds to human evil, right? In our culture, we place a really high value on nonviolence and nonviolent protest. I think this is really, really good, um, not only because just actually statistically like Gandhi and, and Dr. King and others proved that that's actually the most effective way of doing it, but, but also just I think there's, there is something right about responding to human evil with peace, with creative, direct action, but through peace. And so we place a high value on that in our culture. It just it, We sort of have it in our bones that this is the most beautiful, right way to respond to evil. And so... When we think of God judging, the way it comes across to us, it's like, well, God isn't being peaceful in his response to evil, and so that must be, that must be bad. He needs to do what, what we would do, or what we should do. But I, actually, I think this is a position that really concerns me, and I don't think it's a comparison that we should be drawing. So first, it, it concerns me just because it doesn't line up with Christian Hebrew scriptures, but, but even just on the level of, like, moral philosophy— I'm not sure that a God who doesn't judge is the, is the God we want. I'm not sure that a God who doesn't judge would actually even be a good God. In fact, I, I tend to think that in order for us to be peaceful in our response to, to evil, we have to have a reason to believe that evil will not go unpunished. Does that make sense? So in order for us to respond with peace— to evil. We have to have a reason to think evil will not go unpunished. So Miroslav Volf, he's a, he's a philosopher and a thinker, uh, happens to be a, a believer as well, a Christian. And he, he, he was raised in Croatia. He was witness to incredible acts of violence, incredible acts of political injustice, and spent a lot of his career, you know, he's still alive, so continues to spend much of his career contemplating violence and, and the effects of political injustice. Um, and for, for him, he, he, he kind of came to the same conclusion that in, for, in order for us to value peace, we have to have a reason to think that evil will not go unpunished. Here's a quote from him. It's kind of lengthy, but I'll read it. So he, he writes, to the person who's inclined to dismiss divine judgment, I suggest imagining you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. He's actually describing something that he did. So he, he, he did, in fact, deliver a lecture on this topic in a war zone. So he's describing that. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of your lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The, the thesis, the point of your, lecture, of your lecture, we should not retaliate because God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home to arrive at the idea that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge, so in other words, it takes the comfort of a suburban home to think that that we should be nonviolent because God won't judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, this idea is invariably going to die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Of course, liberal here he's not talking about like a political party. He's talking about someone sort of accommodating historic Christianity to fit cultural fetishes, basically. So it's not like political, liberal, it's whatever. So you know what I mean. Anyway, so I think it's really helpful just to remember that we live in a relatively safe, relatively affluent country. We live under the rule of law, which is not common and really, really hard to achieve. We also live in a society that's highly insulated from, from death and from violent injustice. And so I just encourage us today as we walk through this passage that really does talk about God's Judgment. I just encourage us to be really aware of whether our views are being shaped by, um, by truth or by America. Is sort of what I kind of want us to just be conscious of as we walk through this. So that's all I'm going to say on, on, on judgment. Again, I think a sermon is the beginning of a conversation, not the end. So please talk to each other, talk to me. It's a hard topic, and it's mysterious in many ways. And so the way that we're going to get closer and closer to, to the truth is, is in community. So let's start to transition into the passage. You might have heard me say that last week we'd sort of be in the weeds today. That's very true. There's a lot to cover, and it's a passage that has stirred up a lot of disagreement. So, what I'm presenting you with is just what I think is the most convincing way of understanding Jesus's words, and I I, I think, you know, I I think I've done my best to come to my conclusion not just because it feels right or or because I I like my conclusion, but because it, it really lines up with the Book of Matthew and the rest of the Bible. So. What I'm going to do is just, there's going to be sort of a main point for us to kind of put our hooks into, and then we're just going to, like, walk through the passage. I feel like that's the best way for us to do it. If you're here and you're new to Trinity or you're exploring Christianity, I'll just say, ahead of everything, not every Sunday is going to be like this, right? So we hope that you'll come back next week and experience, you know, a a relatively normal Sunday. Um, But today we will be in the weeds. And so if if there's something that that feels alienating, don't sweat it. Um, ask questions if, if, you're, if you're interested, but again, uh, not every text of the Bible is, is this buried in, in first century details. And so the sort of work that we're going to have to do this morning, we won't have to do it with every passage. So anyway, let's jump in. The main point today, the judgment of God fell on Israel as it will one day fall on all humanity. And so what I'm going to argue is that from verses 15 to 35, Jesus is only talking about the first half of that sentence. He's only describing the judgment of God falling on Israel, and then after that, I think a change takes place, and he starts moving to the idea of of his eventual return to restore all things. So as you guys remember from last week, Jesus has just announced that the people who should have been loyal to God have rejected him. They've communicated that they don't want him, they don't want his way of life, they don't want their identity as his people. This is the nation of Israel. They've failed to sort of be Israel. They've failed to be God's people. And so God is forming a new people out of not only Jews, but out of all nations. And what that means is that ethnic Israel is not going to be the center of the faith anymore. The whole temple system, this whole glorious thing in, in Jerusalem, all of that is going to come to an end. And so God's going to demonstrate that through eventually the destruction of the temple. And so we, you know, a couple weeks ago we heard Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed. So the disciples start asking him, like, man, if the temple's being destroyed, that's so horrible, that's got to be like the end of the world. And so Jesus begins to explain about the destruction of the temple and, and his eventual return and that these are, these are totally different events. So he, right here he begins talking about signs to watch out for. So this is verses 15 to 28. I think it'd be really useful to have a Bible open. Again, we're going to be in the weeds today, and then next week, it'll be normal again, but today we've got to be in the weeds a little bit. So uh, page 8:29, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs, false prophets, they're going to arise and perform great signs and wonders that will lead many astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, that's what the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So there are some who, who, who read this and what they think is being described here is sort of like, a, you know, like what we call like the end times, sort of this, the, these final moments right before Jesus sort of culminates human history. And so they, you know, there's many folks that will read this and, and be looking for, for signs that we should be also keeping our eyes out for. Here's a few reasons why why I have not been persuaded by that. So first... Uh, Jesus sees these events taking place in, in Judea. He specifies that it's taking place in Judea. So it's sort of a local event he's talking about. Secondly, he tells the disciples that they should keep their eye out for this abomination in the temple, this great, unclean something that's going to happen. Uh, so it, it, whatever it is that Jesus is describing, it takes place while the temple is still, still there, which, of course, it, it wasn't by the year 80-70. Third, this is probably not talking about Jesus' return, because at one point he even describes that this, this great suffering of, of, of folks within Jerusalem is going to be unlike anything before or after. And so again, we're not talking about like an ending of human history situation here. We're talking about a specific violent political event. And then eventually in verse 34 on the next page, he's going to say that everything he's predicted up to this point is going to happen within what he calls this generation, right? That's not a symbolic phrase he, he just means his generation, right? So all these events that Jesus is describing here, I don't think that it's talking about the ending of human history. I think we're talking about something else, something that's going to be within living memory of of his words. So if it's not the second coming, what is it? Can we go to the, the slide? Um, I feel like I put these images on the screen, and they're... Hardly ever visible to you guys. I'm so sorry. So um, what's pictured here is a bunch of guys who look like Roman soldiers. And I, I don't know if you can see it, but this guy sort of toward the, the middle here, if you'll notice what he's carrying, is uh, carrying a, a Jewish menorah. So this is a stone mural from what's called the Arch of Titus. And what this is depicting is an event that took place in 70 CE where the Romans sieged Jerusalem. And then eventually leveled the, the temple to the ground. They, they plundered it of all its goods. They took everything away. It was this, this kind of horrifying event. It happened because a number of uh, a, a political group called the Zealots, the Jewish Zealots, they had started a rebellion four years before. And eventually Rome responded, as they often did, to, to rebellions. And they, they sieged the city. Many people starved. It was a, it was a horrifying, horrifying event. And so Titus had it sort of commemorated, like his victory sort of celebrated through the stone mural of plundering the, the Jewish temple. They leveled it to the ground to, to the extent that, like, literally no stone was left on top of the other. The only thing left standing was one of the walls of the temple precinct. So not even the actual building itself. They, they left one wall standing of, like, the, the, the boundary of the district, right, which is, is what we know as the Wailing Wall. And so Thousands, thousands of people were killed. It was this horrifying moment. I think what we're seeing Jesus describe are the events of that siege and the the events leading up to that siege. I think that's what he's talking about, this great, what he calls a tribulation. And he's giving his disciples signs to look out for. So they're supposed to look out for what he calls this abomination, and we're not sure what that turned out to be, but it's some sign, some sort of something that would have been understood by them that they're supposed to look out for, and when they see it, they're supposed to run Right. And he mentions false prophets and leaders, these kind of like snake oil salesman types that would, that would rise up and start talking about um, you know, peace for Jerusalem. They would come in the, at, you know, claiming to be a Messiah type like Jesus, and we actually know that that's exactly what happened. Le- leading up to the rebellion, there were many folks um, that the historian Josephus talks about who came claiming to be a Messiah figure, either in the wilderness or in inner rooms, and they would, they would say there's peace coming for, for the Jews Stage a rebellion, you'll win. They're, they promised a lot of—they they promised victory. And of course, that wasn't what, what came about. So I, I think that's what this whole first section is about. It's about this siege on Jerusalem. All right, so how are you guys doing so far? Is this pretty tough? You all right? Okay. All right, so this next part is the most demanding. So for, for Jesus, these events, the, these events that he's describing, this is highly important. The destruction of the temple, it's not just like a, a bad event— it's it's demonstrating something. So the destruction of the temple means something to Jesus that he's that he's trying to communicate. It demonstrates that a big change has taken place in human history. What's that change going to be? The the change is the one that we've that we've seen throughout the book of Matthew. That that Jesus is gathering a new people for himself, a people. Um, not only of, of ethnic Jews, but also of all nations, of the marginalized, of the broken, of the disenfranchised, of the disappointed, like all these, these folks, the, the rejected in society, the down and out, as well as the very, very rich. He's bringing them all together around himself to bring about a new people. And so what that means is that ethnic Israel isn't going to be the center of God's plan anymore. And that doesn't mean that God is going to suddenly become an anti-Semite, Right? I have to say that because, unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, Christians have used passages like this to justify heinous anti-Semitism. That's totally not the point here, right? Like, the Christian movement was launched by ethnic Jews. So God's not an anti-Semite. So any Christian that that justifies anti-Semitism through a passage like this doesn't read their Bible hard enough or doesn't want to. And so, but the point, though, is that... that the center of God's plan is not going to be the nation. It's going to be Christ himself, and he's going to draw to himself folks from all different origins, all different uh, ethnicities, all different nations, all different kinds of people. And so Jesus sees this destruction of the temple as this really big deal before, because it, it sort of demonstrates that this change has taken place. There's been a shift. And so, when Jesus gets around to actually narrating what the destruction of the temple is like, he doesn't use straightforward language. Instead, when he actually begins to talk about what the destruction of the temple is like, he uses this apocalyptic, poetic kind of language, right? Because it's describing something that's so much bigger than just a building being raised to the ground, right? So, here's what he ends up saying. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other." All right, so a number of folks over the years have, have taken this section to be pretty literal, and I understand, I understand why. I think it, it's often out of just a, a, a desire to take Jesus seriously and to understand him, right? And so they take these words to, to, to have literal meaning, so that they'll actually believe that Jesus is predicting the darkening of the sun, the something taking place in the heavens, like the powers of the heavens being shaken. I'm not sure what that would mean, but th- that something is going to happen that would make sense of these words, so here's where I've kind of landed when it comes to this section. I've, I've come to think that if we take these images literally, we're actually going to miss Jesus' point. If we take these images literally, I think we're going to miss Jesus' point. So let me explain what I mean. So let's say that I wanted to describe to you someone who is in love, right? So I could say a sentence like this. So Jack locked eyes with Sally across a room, right? And she took his breath away. He was head over heels, ended up carrying a torch for her for two years until finally they became an item, and he popped the question. Now, if you were not originally an English speaker, what I just said would make no sense, right? Just, it, would, it would be the most baffling thing for you to hear. And so you would have two choices. You could either take everything I said literally, in which case you would miss my point, or you can hop on Google and individually look up each one of those... Fri- I took breath away, got it. Carried a torch, got it. Like, and slowly what you'd be able to do is to, to figure out what it was that I was actually describing. So I think that, that when we encounter something like this in the words of Christ, we have the same two options. We can either say, all this is literal, or we can first check to see if he's referencing something in the Old Testament or in Jewish literature if if he's not, then we should take it literally. If he is, then that, that dictates how we interpret what Jesus says. So it turns out that he is actually referring to different Old Testament passages. In fact, every single phrase here, I mean, it's like every single clause is a reference to a different passage of Scripture. I'm not going to go through each one. What I'm going to do is just kind of throw a table up on the screen that sort of, illustrates a little bit of this, and I'm going to very briefly go through it, but ultimately really I'm just driving toward a summary of what he does here. If, if you want to walk through this with me, please, please approach me, and we'll, we'll go through each and every one of, of these phrases. But here's sort of the summary. So that first thing he says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. That's a, a quote from the prophet Isaiah, and it's from a passage that's describing the destruction of Babylon. So it's, it's a giant political reversal is what Jesus is describing. And so it's, it's described in these sort of like apocalyptic, larger-than-life tones in Isaiah because it's Babylon, an empire falling. And so Jesus quotes this passage. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light because he also is describing a judgment, a, a huge political reversal, but on Israel. The next one, the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken taken from the same prophet, from Isaiah. And again, it's describing a political reversal, a, a judgment. The next one that I threw up on there, the, the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's from the book of Zechariah. Um, it's describing Israel having killed sort of this, this Messiah figure and mourning over the fact that they've killed him. And then finally, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is one that a lot of folks think like, okay, well, this has got to be about sort of the second coming of Christ. It literally says the Son of Man coming, so therefore. The, the question, though, is, is whether Jesus is coming to earth or whether he's coming to his throne. Which, by the way, if you want to snap a picture of this with your phone, feel free. Um, so the question is, is he coming to earth or is he coming to his throne? And when you read the quote that this is from this this whole passage is about the enthronement of Christ. So it's this idea that Jesus or the Son of Man in in this passage in in, in Daniel has accomplished this incredible work, and now he takes his throne to sort of superintend the ending of human history. And so that's what Jesus is quoting. It isn't a return passage. It's him going to his throne. And then finally he goes back to the prophet Isaiah and talks about God drawing to himself people from all over the world. And so the, the next slide sort of sums this up. Verse 29 is, that, is about a great judgment about to fall on Israel. Verse 30, this judgment is going to demonstrate that Jesus has been enthroned over history in verse 31, in the place of former Israel, a new people is going to be gathered from the nations. How are you guys doing? You all right? We're through it, all right? So this is the toughest part of the book of Matthew. So we, we, we made it through. So again, the sermon is the beginning of a conversation. Please talk to me about this. I, I, I know that what I just presented is one of many perspectives, and so I, I hope that conversation will begin. But this is what I think Jesus is getting at. I think he's, he's talking about this huge transition that is taking place. And he, he ends up telling his disciples in the next section that they should be watchful for the signs that this is happening. So that's, that's in, in verse 32 through 35, where he says, be watchful for these signs that, that this is happening, essentially, so that they can escape. And, uh, and, and many Christians did. They escaped to, to Pella. And we're not sure what, what it was that tipped them off, but something about what Jesus said here. So, now I'm going to say something that will sound like maybe I'm backtracking slightly, but this section is most likely about the temple, but I also think it's one of the reasons why, I think one of the reasons why Jesus describes the destruction in these sort of symbolic terms is because the judgment on Israel is not the final judgment. That there is another day coming when the heavens will be shaken, the sun lose its light. Maybe not literally, but a real judgment is going to take place. And all humanity across time and across the globe will be the ones evaluated. And so that's the second half of, half of our statement. God's judgment fell on Israel as it will one day fall on all humanity. And so Jesus transitions here and he says, now concerning that day and hour, in other words, he, he's saying, now to get back to the question you originally asked, right, to the disciples, he, he, he says that no one knows the, the day or the hour. I'll, I'll read the section. No one knows the day or the hour Not even even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then the two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So Jesus is talking about now his, his return. He actually even uses a different word for, for his coming, just to sort of separate it from, from what he was talking about earlier. He uses a, di- a different word. Jesus is, is saying that his return is going to happen in this unexpected, unannounced way. It's going to be this sudden event. No warning. Just sort of a, like, all right, we're done sort of thing, where, where all things will, will come to an end. And it describes two people just sort of going about their work. And then suddenly one is taken and the other left. And it's this really startling image of, of like the suddenness of the judgment, of this, this one taken in, in judgment and the other left. It's this, I think, an intentionally startling image that he leaves us with. And so we're left with this, this, this reality that the risen Jesus is reigning over history and could return at any time. And when he does, it will be a time of mourning and fear, but also a time of incredible joy, of the restoration of all things. And we'll know it when it's begun to happen. So what does that mean for how we live? What Jesus ends up telling us is he tells us to stay awake, which sometimes is hard during a sermon like this. But stay awake. (laughs) Stay alert. If If we know that Jesus could come at any time, then we should live ready for it. And so what does that really mean for us? I don't think it means just having this sort of like constant fever pitch of like, like expectation, right? Where it's like I'm going to live either always afraid or always hopeful for the return of Christ and just try to maintain an emotional state. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Instead, when he actually goes on to describe what it means to stay awake, he talks about an obedient servant. When Jesus returns, he just wants to find us kind of going about the daily work of a Christian, relying on his grace, repenting of sin, loving our neighbor, being hospitable, working hard at, at whatever work it is that we've been given to do and worshiping with God's people. Um, C.S. Lewis has a, has a great little quote in his essay, The World's Last Night. He puts it this way, what is important is not that we should always fear or hope about the end, but that we should always remember, always take it into account, For what comes is judgment. Happy are those whom it finds laboring in their vocations. Whether they were merely going out to feed the pigs or laying good plans to deliver humanity a hundred years from then from a great evil, the curtain has now indeed fallen. Those pigs will never in fact be fed. The great campaign against slavery or governmental tyranny will never in fact proceed to victory. But what matters is that you were at your post when the inspection came. And so I think that's what Jesus is describing, that we should just be at our post when the inspection comes. But I also want to say something, too. I think that that too often this news of judgment is is preached in a way where it's like, hey, you better be good enough. You better be good enough or you're not going to make it through. And as many of you know, there, there is nothing more opposite to the Christian message. We do not remain in the field or at the mill. We do not survive the judgment because we're good enough. That's precisely why Jesus died. is because we're not and we can't be. Instead, the thing that will set apart God's people, what it means to be ready for his return is to be in touch with our deep and desperate need for Christ. Our deep and, and desperate need for, for each other. ultimately the grace of God. That we would be reliant on his grace in all things. That we would be searching for for ways to more and more align ourselves with his way. That doesn't mean perfection. That doesn't mean that we become these sort of overly pious spiritual athletes, but instead, I think what what you'll end up becoming is a person of deep authenticity who's in touch with, with how messed up you actually are and unafraid to let it show. because so at the end of the day, the thing that, that, that gets us through the judgment is the grace of God freely offered to each and every one of us, no matter where we stand, no matter who we are, or where we come from, whatever. At the end of the day, it's the grace of God that gets us through, and it's the grace of God to which we cling. So that's the note I want to end on. That's the note that we're going to take up again in the spring when we return to Matthew. Be ready and cling to the grace of God. So we're entering into the season of Advent, which is when we celebrate the the first coming of Christ, what we celebrate through Christmas. And we ourselves are waiting for a second Advent. And so this December, as we we think about the longing of Israel for its Savior, I I encourage us to, to make the space to reflect, to try to be as unbusy as possible, and just identify with that kind of longing. And in fact, next Sunday, what we're going to be doing is just a Sunday of testimonies. We're going to invite testimonies of just what God has been doing in your life. I encourage you to think over, particularly, where, where are you seeing yourself grow in Christ-likeness as you sort of learn the way of Jesus. I encourage you to think on that, and, and we'll have an opportunity next Sunday to, to sort of share. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you even for tough passages of Scripture that reveal things about yourself and about us. We do ask, Lord, that you would help us to be ready, diligent to follow you, diligent to lean on your grace. We thank you, Lord, that, that the judgment at the end of the day is not about um, who's the most churchy. It's not about who's uh, the most successful or the most put-together. Sometimes it's about who's the most desperate. So we thank you, Lord, that you have made it clear that all of us are in need and that through the cross and the resurrection, you have supplied what it is that we need.